sometimes a visiting preacher, it's nice to hear someone else talking, but it's also nice to have a little bit of context to understand who they are and why I might be a little bit strange. Um, so I'm the pastor at Ashill Baptist Church, just a few miles uh, away from here. I'm currently in my second year of four training at Bristol Baptist College. I'm married to Lucy. Um, we met when we both worked together for Lloyds Bank. I was her team leader, so when I asked her out for a drink, she couldn't say no, and then we got married. Um, uh, so Lucy was a Christian, I was an atheist, I was tolerant, I said you crack on and do what you want to do, I'm going to lay in bed hungover on a Sunday morning and watch TV, you can go to church by all means. One Tuesday morning I woke up and I thought wow I'd like to go to church this weekend and I didn't realise that Lucy had been given a word at a youth camp, just about youth wasn't it, um, young adults camp that she went to that I would be saved and she hadn't told me, um, she waited patiently and one day um, I accompanied her to church and I heard the gospel preached for the first time and I was saved. Um, and yeah, what a fantastic time that was. Um, I felt the call to ministry just a few months before we got married. Um, so that was quite a busy time, as I'm sure all the married people can appreciate. So we decided um, between us and our pastor to put that on hold. Um, and when we went up to Scotland for our honeymoon, we were walking around one of the locks. And I said to Lucy, if God is really calling me to ministry, I'm sure I'll lose my job. You can see where this is going. Um, it was, at the time, very unlikely that that would happen. Um, I'd been told I couldn't um, take any time off to start studying part-time. They needed me. I was an integral part of the business. I was working for a catering company by this time. Um, well, I'd, I'd long since left the bank. Um, at a good point as well, I think. Um, so, um, yeah, I said, if God really is calling me, I'm sure I'll, be, I'll, I'll, I'm sure I'll lose my job. Got back to work on the Monday morning, and apparently God has very big ears, um, because I was made redundant upon walking into the office. A complete shock, not a great start to, um, to married life, and we didn't laugh at the time. But, um, but God is good. Um, I went and met with um, my pastor. I was scheduled to meet with him the Tuesday after our honeymoon anyway, and when I got there, it was a completely different agenda um, that we were going through. We prayed that I'd be able to find part-time employment so that I could afford to pay bills, to support our, our new marriage, um, but I'd be able to do some in-house training and at the Baptist Church. We had a, a program called the Joshua Challenge, which was about raising up a new generation of leaders. It was some basic theological training, and it gave us an opportunity to get out and serve in um, smaller churches. And I said to Lucy when we pulled up here this morning, I said, I feel like I'm going back to Alton. Um, there was a small fellowship, much smaller than this, um, that we used to visit every now and again when I wasn't chefing. Um, we'd, uh, we'd go over there and preach. And um, it was sort of a nostalgic feeling um, turning up here this morning. And I feel really blessed, but intimidated, because there's no great big wooden lectern to hide behind. And there's so many people. Um, so we prayed, and um, I found a part-time job um, working for who was um, Lucy's youth leader growing up, a gentleman called Justin. He was my head chef for uh, a few years. And I think I was the highest paid, lowest qualified chef in the kitchen. Um, and I don't know if that's because when he was growing up, Lynn Green was his youth worker and he felt some sort of obligation to, towards me being called to ministry, her being the General Secretary of the Baptist Union and him knowing Lucy as well. But like I said, God was good and it provided for us whilst we went through the call testing um, procedure, which was long. I started at Bristol studying theology at that time and... Um, then I was inducted as the minister in training at Ashill Baptist Church, and Nigel Manjis, our, our newest addition to the regional team, said he'll remember three inductions, his own, um, an induction where he was told to dress down, turned up in an open-collar shirt, everyone else was in board shorts and flip-flops because it was an induction on the beach, and um, also the first induction he'd ever done in a pub. Um, we had our induction um, 
in the barn at the Square and Compass. I think a few people might have been there, maybe some smiling faces. I apologise, I think I've got that traditional Baptist minister trait that I don't remember faces and names, uh, and whether or not I've introduced myself to you before. So, at some point, if I do that this morning, I apologise. But enough about me. We're here this morning to look at a couple of passages in the book of Acts. Now, um, Andy asked me a few weeks ago to... um, to preach on something to do with discipleship and community and membership, as has been mentioned this morning. Um, And I believe you've already looked at Acts 2 before and also Acts 11, but I think there's no harm in going over again um, because God can still speak to us through those things. So I'm going to briefly look at a couple of attributes of the church in Acts um, and then link it into one of the core values of the Baptist Union of Great Britain. You can tell I'm at a Baptist uh, training college at the moment. Um, So whilst you turn to Acts chapter 2, which is about to appear behind me on the screen, I'd just like to give you some facts about Acts. And if you guys have been studying this book for a little while, you'll know some of this, but it it doesn't hurt. It's widely accepted that Luke wrote the gospel gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Um, Luke's gospel was written in approximately 62 AD, and eight years later he followed it up. And very little is known about Luke. He's only briefly mentioned three times in the New Testament. But it was assumed he was Greek by having a Greek name and the excellent standard which he wrote his gospel and the book of Acts in. Um, and that high standard of literary, literary skill would suggest that Luke was a well-educated man. And it's, it's written in Colossians 4.14 by the Apostle Paul that he was the beloved physician. Some scholars searched in vain to try and find technical language that Luke used to sort of further link into the idea of him being trained in, in medicine. They couldn't find anything. However, there is a strong support of his being trained as a physician in uh, Acts 28.8 when he describes an illness in great detail. And to save your looking, because when I read this, I was like, oh, wow, what's that going to be? Um, it was dysentery and fever. Nothing exciting. But consider yourselves blessed um, if, uh, if you experience that. So Acts, like Luke Go- Luke's gospel, is largely an eyewitness account. Um, and it shows the spread in reach and influence of the church and the growth numerically. It serves to encourage us, I think, that the church does grow amidst trial and persecution we take, um, when we take our lead from the Holy Spirit. We see in Acts our first martyr, Stephen, was stoned by um, Paul, who would eventually, uh, Saul, who would eventually become Paul after a blinding conversion on the road to Damascus. And he was who penned the vast majority of our New Testament. Acts is truly an exciting read, and the testimony of the individual churches is very encouraging for us. So, without further ado, Acts 2, 42 to 47. Now, just to confuse things, you guys have got the NIV, I've got the ESV. They're very similar. Verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were gathered together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Now, if you'd like to turn into your Bibles... um, in your Bibles to Acts 11. Whilst you're doing that, I'm just going to briefly um, break down what we've seen there. We've seen disciples who were devoted to the teaching of the church leaders, devoted to fellowship, to breaking bread and to prayer. 
They were together. They had all things in common. They were generous. Verse 45 said they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds as they saw fit. And it, it seems, if we just break the passage down a little bit, they didn't just meet together in their homes. They met in the church as well. It was a whole life thing. They met together corporately and they met together to break bread and to share in prayer and fellowship. And How exciting is that? A biblical warrant for small groups, if ever you needed one, is right there. So it's simple, right? That's how God added to their number. That's how we can grow the church. It's easy. Or is it? <clears throat> Acts 11, 21 to 26. Again in the ESV, I'm sorry. And then the hand of the Lord was with them. Who was them, quickly? That was the men from Cyprus and Cyrene who were preaching the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Hellenists, the Greek-speaking Jews. So these men were preachers, and God's hand was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with a steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. I long to be that good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith that is, that is how Barnabas is described. That struck me there as we read that. So what further attributes can we see here? People were coming to what we can assume was a saving faith in verse 21. And Barnabas didn't have to persuade people to have faith. He was, he was persuading them to remain faithful. They already had a faith. He was encouraging them. Barnabas' name literally means to encourage. These guys were good at evangelism. Verse 24, and a great many people were added to the Lord. They were good at what they were doing. Just as a side note here, I'd like to point out that these, guys, these people that were being saved were added to the Lord, not to the apostles, not to the church. They were being added to the Lord. It, they, were, they were God's possession, not the possession of the preacher, not the possession of the church leaders. They were the possession of the Lord. It was the gospel that saved them, and it was to God's glory. They were disciples, and they were called Christians. Something that what these guys were doing was, was giving them that label as followers of Christ. And Barnabas and Paul stuck around. Their teaching was for maturity. They recognized that this was a new fellowship, young people, and that together they needed to, to be trained and taught and led and developed. So a picture that's beginning to be painted here is that the church worked together, lived together, ate together. They were together. They were unified in body and spirit in wanting only what Christ wanted for the church. Kingdom growth through gospel proclamation. And that gospel proclamation entailed everything. If the main course, there's a chef link here, if the main course was the gospel, the signs and wonders, the miracles, uh, the addition of souls, the endurance of faith amidst persecution were all the glorious additions, the side orders, if you will, that came with that main course. The gospel isn't the end, it's just the beginning. But is there a biblical warrant, really, for brotherhood, for, for solidarity, for unity and being together? Because the people in the Bible, they were saintly. They're better than us. They got into Scripture. We're not in the Bible. They could do it. They, they, they knew the people who knew Jesus. They knew those apostles. Let's face it, there's probably someone somewhere at church that we don't like. Um, maybe not to the extent that we don't want to be with them, but we might think, oh, do I have to deal with this guy again today? 
So is there some difficulty within community? Maybe you don't like your pastor. I'm sure you do. He's a lovely guy. I love Andy. What a, what a great man. Um, but on that basis, maybe if we don't like something in community, maybe should we go it alone? Should we remove ourselves? Should we, you know, we're good at studying the Bible. My personal prayer and devotion, I, I'm dedicated. I'm saved on that basis alone. I don't need anyone else to teach me what to do. But which of those attitudes is right? We all know the former, that idea of accountability. But what's the biblical basis for that? Paul teaches us we're adopted as sons and daughters into the family of God. God is our father and Jesus Christ is our brother. Which is great, but is it? Because that means we're family. And everyone's heard the age-old idiom, I'm sure. You can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. And the bad news there, folks, is that church isn't just a set of friendships, it's a family that we have to be committed to. As the great theologian Phil Mitchell from EastEnders would say, it's family. (laughs) So church becomes a place where we are to endure together, to persevere together, all for the gospel that we might get ourselves and our brothers and sisters to that glorious day of completion. And that's exactly what makes church such a beautiful but challenging place. Nowhere else on earth do I think you'd find so many people that are that are striving towards one goal, who are from so many different backgrounds, young, old, black, white, so many different people. And they're all together in their love and desire to serve the Lord. We're not made to run this race alone. We're made to run it together. And sometimes people have to drag us just as much as we have to drag them. So what does that mean? It seems that the Christians in the early church were obedient to the Great Commission of Christ, which was set out in Matthew 28. They were taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. Now, what does the ends of the earth mean for us here this morning? Because some of you might say, I don't have a valid passport. I'm too old to travel. But it's to the ends of of our own earth. We're we're all going somewhere. We're all going into some mission field, whether that's work or university. We lead some sort of group We have family and friends who don't believe. That's our mission field. That's the end of our earth that we're going to. I think if there's one hero of the faith who isn't a character in the Bible, because everyone would love to have a coffee with Jesus, I'd like to have a a, a sit-down and a chat, maybe in the stable, with the gentleman who said this. The church is only the church when it exists for others. Does anyone know who that is? No, that's fine. No, sorry. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And that is one man who knew what it was to serve others and to suffer in that service. One of my favorite stories about Bonhoeffer was that they'd smuggled him out of a concentration camp and he got out and he said, no, I'm supposed to be in there with those guys. So he said, smuggle me back in. He knew what it was to serve. And I'm sure he wasn't a perfect person. He probably had to say, Lord, create in me a new heart, something clean, something beautiful. Because I'm not perfect. I can't love everyone. He said when Christ bids us to come follow him, he bids us come and die. And that's putting to death in us the things of this world, the things that hold us back from dealing with people we don't like. I'm preaching to myself here as much as to anyone else. We leave behind the world that tells us that we should be our primary motivation in exchange for a gospel of servitude which bids us that we should be the least among all men and that our motivation is first Christ and then everyone else but ourselves. That's radical, radical stuff. Who else is telling you, yeah, help everyone else? Nowhere. 
the business world tells us to try and succeed and to go as far as we can. And, and you know, we might trample on everyone else underneath just so that we can succeed. But, but Christianity is so countercultural. We're trying to succeed for others, not for ourselves. And that is an amazing thing. So that's what we've learned from Scripture. This church was having fellowship, meeting together, praying together, breaking bread, living a life, serving the gospel to other people that they might come and eat and be nourished by it. But practically, how can we do that here in Fifehead, in Ash Hill, in Somerset, in the UK, in Europe? One of the five core values of the Baptist denomination is to live as an inclusive community. The Union website describes it as this. Following Jesus in transcending barriers of gender, language, race, class, age, and culture. Identifying with those who are rejected, deprived, and powerless, we should reflect Jesus' love for the fallen, the excluded, the poor, and hungry, the oppressed, voiceless, and powerless. I'm going to put that in layman's terms for everyone because that's big Baptist words to try and confuse the other denominations into what we do. Judah Smith, in his book Jesus Is, he's a pastor of a big American church in Seattle. He says, I don't want to belong to a church that treats a woman differently because she happens to walk into church in a a dress that shows off a little too much skin. You know, cleavage doesn't intimidate God. Smoke that religion. Maybe that's the only nice dress she owns. Maybe everyone she knows dresses that way. Maybe she's desperate, and she's thinking that if she doesn't find some authentic love and joy today, that might be it. That might be the end. But he said, I'm not advocating sloppiness or sensuality in church. I'm advocating a church that reflects real life. We need to be honest as Christians. Honest like the priest was honest to one of his flock who came to confession. She came in to the confessional booth and said, Bless me, Father, for I've sinned. What is it, child? The priest replied. The lady bore her soul to the priest. Father, she said, I've committed the sin of vanity. Twice a day I gaze at myself in the mirror and tell myself that I'm the most beautiful woman who ever walked the face of the earth. The priest turned, took a look at her and said, My dear, I have good news. That isn't a sin. It's only a mistake. <laughs> now, uh, we could all see the way that was going. Now, that's not necessarily the best type of honesty in what I'm calling us to here. But it's about being accepting, not having a committee meeting when someone comes in and we, we don't like the look of them because they're different. We don't want to have that little committee meeting in the corner just within earshot so that, that person experiences the type of rejection they feared they might actually receive upon walking through the doors of a church. We want to be an open, loving, caring place, a place where the broken people can come. So anyone who was just thinking, oh, I might go to Ash Hill at some point, he seems nice. I'm obviously too, too honest. But the Gospels clearly record Jesus as rebuking the disciples, as teaching them that we should challenge a brother or sister within sin. Proverbs tells us that iron, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. And I actually made a mistake in my notes here. I said, as iron sharpens iron, so one man disciples another. But I think that's a perfect mistake to have made there. And Hebrews 3 tells us to exhort one another every day. We're to encourage, we're to challenge. And it's a huge burden. Human nature makes it difficult for us to confront others. Especially, we're white, middle-class English people. I'm not helping that stereotype this morning, really, am I, with a tweed jacket? But we don't want to uh, offend anyone, and we certainly don't want to be offended. 
But the Bible sets a very high benchmark for the lifestyle of a Christian. And one of the dangers of removing ourselves from a fellowship, like I talked about earlier, is that a good idea to separate ourselves, is that we lose accountability and it becomes our way or the highway. And that's exactly what it appears the church in Acts 2 and Acts 11 didn't do. They had accountability in their fellowship with each other. They were praying for each other. They sat under the teaching of those called to teach them. They learned from them, spent time studying scripture and just sharing life generally. So how does that fit in with membership? It's an obligation of a church member to do those things, to to pray for the church, to pray for its leaders, to pray together, to break bread together, to share life together. 1 Corinthians tells us in chapter 12 that we're one body with many members. Some people are hands, some people are arms, some people are the bottoms that we don't like very much, but they all serve a purpose within our church. Even the difficult ones have a purpose. And it's when we commit ourselves to a church to pray, to live life with those people, that God starts to peel layers away from us and break down what we have inside of us, creates in us a new heart. Christ bids us to come and follow him, but Christ bids us to come and die, to change. 1 Corinthians 12, 26 tells us this especially. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honoured, all rejoice together. And how much of a blessing is that to be part of a community where you know people will mourn with you when you need it, but will rejoice and be glad with you when you need that. And it's good enough for God, so it should be good enough for us. God is a triune God who lives in community himself. We read in Genesis 3, God speaks of himself in a plural. He says, let us make man in our own image. So if it's good enough for him, it should be good enough for us, although I'd like to put in a disclaimer there that there are probably very few familial disputes between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And if there are, they're probably very good at practicing what the Bible preaches on not letting the sun go down on anger and forgiving a brother when they sin against you. But God calls us to be in community. The prophet Ezekiel puts it like this, and I, God, will give you a new heart and a new spirit will I put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. God tells us that we shall be his people. He doesn't tell us that we shall be his person. It's a collective. It's a community. And we know that when two or three are gathered, as was read this morning, Jesus is here with us. But that's not to undermine the importance of personal prayer and devotion. A lot of people say, I really want God to speak to me. Well, God speaks an awful lot through this book. So it's important that we sit down and we let that book challenge us. But the great thing about being in a community of accountability is that when we struggle with something, we can go to someone, we can say, I need your help to understand this. I I don't get it. What's God trying to say here? You can pray with someone else. Such a dangerous thing is to be able to log onto the internet and Google a Bible passage and find some strange guy who probably lives with his parents um, in his 60s or 70s, and he's got some website that's basically denouncing the Catholic Church as some strange organization. Those are dangerous people. They have no accountability. They're isolated. They're by themselves. They don't have someone to sharpen them, as the Bible puts it. I've got two more points before I'd like to close. That doesn't mean I'm going to be going for another 20 minutes, I promise. We've all got roast dinners, I'm sure, to get home to. Briefly, I'd like to touch on generosity 
We saw in Acts 2.45 that early fellowships sold their possessions and gave as they saw fit. And how edifying is it to give into something that we're committed to? As was said this morning when the offering went round, you don't have to pay to get in, but God does call us to commit 10% of our finances into the church for church growth. And what a blessing when we get to see that used. And God loves a cheerful giver. And sometimes that cheer will come out after we've given because we get to see the children using something new. We get to see the youth group go on, on something. It's just a great way of seeing God at work and we're reaping into something we're praying for and that we believe in and that's the most important thing. When we come into our local church as members, we commit ourselves to each other through thick and thin, just as Christ committed himself. He doesn't commit himself just to us when we're good. He commits himself to us all the time. So as members, together, we can seek to build a church that offers respite from much of what people experience in the world that is unkind, tiring, demeaning, inhumane and distressing. We can pray for our pastor, pray for our leaders, pray for each other that our church would be the most welcome, and it really is, by the way, the most welcoming and loving place that you could walk into. It's such a blessing to be here this morning. If they come to a church, these people, to avoid all those things and find the very things from which they're running, that's the woman wearing the dress with a bit too much skin, they may simply go and join those who are cynical about the church and God. That would indeed be a great tragedy. The church, for its own sake and for its integrity, has to be a space of care and love. Amen. I'm going to pray for us. Um, Pray through some of those points I've made in that sermon there this morning. That we could be a place of care and love that we could be a community of passionate and loving disciples. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray and I thank you for your word, a word which cuts us to the heart to change us and to transform us, to make us people after your own heart, Lord, to seek out the lost and the broken, the hurting, I pray, Father, that you would make us, wherever we are, lights within our community. That through the little things, people might come to know that we're Christians, that we're disciples. That we love you and that we love your people. And we love them for nothing more than the fact that you want to call them into a relationship with you. That you want to adopt them as sons and daughters, as your possession, Lord, into your family. A family of misfits a family of broken people. Lord, I pray that we would be obedient to fulfill our calling as disciples, that we would live an exemplary life, that we'd be equipped to preach the gospel, however that may be, to the ends of our own earth. I pray, Lord, that you would give us boldness and courage. Lord, let us be givers of grace. Just as we're sinners and you forgive us, beyond measure despite our shortcomings that we will be able to model a lifestyle of forgiveness and grace make us a forgiving and graceful community so that we might be different from the world so that people would experience at a human level just a glimpse of the love of, a, of the heavenly father and Lord we ask that for every person we upset you would forgive us 
just as for every person that's upset us, we would forgive them. Let us model a forgiving God who died for us while we were undeserving. And Lord, let us commit ourselves to a local church to pray for each other, to pray for our pastor and to pray for our leaders, to pray for the finances, to pray for the church we, we love. Lord, let us not just come to the church to be served, but to serve. Help us to give and live generously, Lord, creating us a new heart for sacrificial living, whether that's our time or our gifts or our money. Lord, let it all be for your kingdom. May we put aside what we want, Lord, to follow what you want for us and for our church. Give us a heart that chases after yours, Lord. We long to be more like you. Amen. As a final blessing this morning, I'm going to read a few words from the Apostle Paul. May the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. Guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Whatever is true, honourable, just, pure, lovely, commendable. If there is any excellence, anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Practice all you have heard, learnt and seen here today and the God of peace will be with you. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit.